All right, first graders are dismissed. And good morning. My name is Matt. I'm the youth director here at Christ Community Church. It's good to be with you all as we gather for worship. If you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. This morning, we're going to focus in on verses 6 through 10 of chapter 3. And so at this point, again, we've crossed the halfway mark in the book of Jonah. We've seen how this book, um, actually, you can divide it up into two very neat halves, the first two chapters and then the second two chapters. We've seen how there are some parallels between those two. Um, we've, of course, gone through Jonah's story as he receives the word of the Lord. The first time he runs away in disobedience, he's swallowed by that fish. He is humbled by God, spat back up on shore. And then last week, we began to see as the word of the Lord came to him the second time. And this time, he obeys and he goes to Nineveh, according to God's word. And so the key truth we're going to see from these verses this morning, though, is that God delights in sovereignly showing compassion to those who repent from their sin and turn to him. So that's what we're going to see in, uh, in Jonah 3, 6 through 10. So I'm going to read the, the word for us this morning. I'll actually start and I'll read the whole, the whole chapter just so we can get the context fresh in our minds again. And then when I'm done, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord and you will get to respond. Thanks be to God. So if you would, hear God's word for us this morning. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. So as we step back into the story this morning again, it's really important for us to remember that Jonah, it is a, a wonderful story. It's a story that captures our imaginations. It's a, a good deal of fun to just sit and think about all the little details and how it all fits together. But it's important for us to remember that the purpose of this story ultimately is to shape us as God's people. It is to teach us about the character of our God, that he is just and compassionate, and that he equips people to reflect his image and go out on his mission. And so as we begin to reflect on the Ninevites' repentance this morning and see what we can learn about the practice of repentance, it's important for us to start out by asking ourselves, what are you most afraid of someone finding out about you? Like what in your life do you feel like if someone knew that about you, there'd be no going back in that relationship. It would be over, you'd lose everything. And what impact is that fear having on your identity? Here's why these questions matter. They matter because the things that we are often most afraid of someone else finding out about us deep down are often the things that we have the hardest time repenting of. 
And not that, you know, we're trying to pull a fast one on God and, you know, just go through the motions but keep doing that sin, but it's rather we struggle to find assurance through our repentance that God really could be compassionate towards us about that thing because we can't imagine somebody else still wanting to be around us due to that thing, so we have a hard time imagining God wanting to be around us due to that thing. Um, In my own life, I spent probably about seven or eight years in high school and college just feeling like I was identified by a few particular sins that I was just horrified at the thought of someone knowing about me. I couldn't imagine people knowing these things and still wanting you know, to know me or be my friend. Um, I was terrified that you know, these things could just ruin my life. Um, and I didn't so, and I, I actually, I prayed a lot about it, but it wasn't that I, I repented as much as I was in God's presence fretting over my sin. It was, I, I would, it was as if I'd run all the way up to the throne of grace and get all the way there, and then instead of you know, falling before God and saying, Father, I need your grace, I would just look down at my hands and look at that mess and just fret about the sin in front of him and never look up and see that in Christ, God, my Father, was smiling down on me in grace. I was missing the whole point because of that fear. Calvin talks actually a lot about the relationship between fear and repentance, and how fear often drives us away from repentance, drives us away from God's presence. Um, Here's what he has to say. He says, faith and repentance are connected together as no one can willingly submit to God except that he has previously known God's goodness and entertained a hope of salvation. For he who is touched only with fear avoids God's presence. And then despair prevails and perverseness follows. So how then was it that the king of Nineveh had seriously and undissemblingly repentant while yet he spoke doubtfully of the favor of God? To this I answer, that it was a measure of doubt which was yet connected with faith, even that type of doubt which does not directly reject the promise of God but has other hindrances. Now there's a lot there um, and it's Calvin and so it's a little wordy at times but his main point is that fear keeps us from turning to God in repentance. It's not necessarily that that we doubt the gospel outright and we disbelieve all of it or we struggle to believe that God is real. We believe he's real. We believe the gospel is true in fact, but we struggle to believe that it's true for us. So there are other hindrances in our hearts, in our lives, the baggage and burdens we carry. And these things often affect our identity. They lead us to forget our union with Christ. They lead us not to repent, but to fret over our sins constantly. And that difference is subtle And we'll explore it a little bit more as we go along. But my prayer for us this morning has been meditating on this passage, preparing to share it with us this morning, is that God would use this word to grow us, not just in our understanding of repentance, not so we could talk more about the importance of repentance, but that he would grow us in our practice of repentance so that he would grow us in our experience of his compassion, even in those areas where we are most afraid to open up before him. Um, in those areas where we, we least expect that his compassion could reach even there and bring renewal and life and restoration and reconciliation. So let's look first at verses six through nine and see how the Ninevites repent from their violent ways. As we've seen from reading the story in context, we see again that Jonah, he gets one day's journey into the city of Nineveh and then the Ninevites basically take over his job for him and they take his message and they spread it from the greatest to the least and it reaches the king. You've gotta take a second to reflect on how amazing that is. You have this one guy rolling on up into Nineveh proclaiming this message 
and it gets to the king. And rather than just obliterate Jonah and wipe him out, because again, this is the king of the Ninevites who are a violent, warlike people. He could have just, you know, waved his fingers and sent, you know, five, five of his biggest, baddest, toughest dudes and just, you know, escorted Jonah out of the city and beheaded him or something. But instead, instead, this king hears this message and he rips off his royal robes, dons sackcloth, and flings himself into the dust and ashes. And that, that last thing, flinging himself in the dust and ashes, that reminds us even of Job. So here's this king, and he's acting like someone who gets it, not the way the Israelites would have expected a king of, of Nineveh to act. Just imagine, you know, if you went and you offered to do a Bible study in the capital of a nation today, do you, do you think the leaders would respond like this? Probably not. And so the, the shock value here shouldn't be lost on us because the Israelites would have looked at Nineveh and they would have said, again, that's a God-forsaken city. Nothing, nothing good will come out of there. Nothing good could go and take root there. They're worthy of God's you know, fire from heaven falling upon them. And yet the irony and the beauty of God's mission at work here, his compassion that's starting to be poured out on this place is that the Ninevites get Joel 2, 12 through 14. They get the, the text that was our call to worship this morning. They fast, they weep, they mourn, and they do rend their garments, but they do more than that. They rend their hearts, and we can tell because of what they're doing with their hands. They turn from their violent ways. And so the king even asks, he quotes Joel and says, who knows? Who knows whether God will not turn and relent from this disaster he's called out against us? And so as we saw in Calvin's reflection on the passage, maybe that question, the who knows, maybe it could be doubt in the king's heart. But at the same time, I think it's also likely that the king recognizes that he has done messed up. He and his people are standing before a sovereign God who is the ruler over all things and they have no hope other than that this God would turn and be compassionate to them. And so when he asks that who knows question, it may not be so much about his doubt as it is about his humility before the sovereign king of the world. And that question is worth us wrestling with. And we have to be careful as we wrestle with it. We can't just copy and paste the who knows question to us entirely because of where we are this side of the cross and the empty tomb. You see, if you believe in Jesus, there's no who knows about whether or not you will be saved if you trust in him. All who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's not up for grabs. Where the question does take root for us in our lives is in the matter of the consequence of our sin. Um, we, when we turn to God, when we repent from our sin and we are brought out of darkness into light, we are given a new identity in Christ, redeemed and beloved child of God. But as we saw in Jonah's life, his second chance wasn't a shortcut. His sin had a cost. His journey was hard and he still had to obey. He still had to up and go to Nineveh and so in our cases, when we turn and we repent to God, we are reminded of who we are now in Christ, but that doesn't mean that God will whisk away all of the consequences of our sin. That's why it's really foolish for us to sit under God's word throughout our lives and week after week and think, nah, I'll get to repentance some other time. I'll get there. You know, when I grow up, when I get on the other side of college, um, when, I, when I've matured a little bit, then, then I'll repent. Um, because one, you don't know that Christ won't return before I finish this sermon. Like, you don't know how long you have. You live in Cobb County, traffic's crazy. Um, it snowed yesterday. Like, there's so many things that we just don't control. So you're, you're you know, you're playing 
um, with fire and you don't have the protective equipment you think you do. And at the same time, you don't know what cost you will pay for all of that sin that you will just let rule your life, the greatest cost of which is that it could harden your heart so bad that the day where you want to repent never comes. And so the question for us as we, as we look at the Ninevites example here is, what does your practice of repentance look like? As you look back this past week, what, what did that look like? And what could you learn from the Ninevites example? One of the things that's so striking here is just how quick they are to jump on this. They don't waste any time in repenting from their sins. They don't kick the can down the road. They, they hear the word of God, they believe it, and they repent. And they hold nothing back. It's very striking that not only the king, but also all the people, and in addition, all of the animals in their city would wear sackcloth and would participate in this fast. It is a total act of repentance. They're not playing the angles and trying to think, well, if I repent of this much, can I keep that much? They turn whole and foolheartedly according to this message they receive from God. Anthony Carter has a great line here where he talks about the relationship between our minds and our hearts and our hands in repentance. He says, a mind renewed is also a heart with affections reoriented toward God. When we think God's thoughts, our hearts swell up with desire for him above all others. Consequently then, redeemed heads and redeemed hearts lead to redeemed hands. How do you know what is in the head has gotten down into the heart? You look at the hands. You look at the hands. And I think that's a really helpful um, just paradigm for us because it slices through the cords of hypocrisy we'll wrap around ourselves. Because sometimes we can talk a lot about repentance without ever actually doing it. And that's super easy. Like it's easy to roll up into a Bible study or into a seminary class and to talk about the importance of repentance and to, and to talk about how we need to do that. We could quote Luther about repentance and all these great things. But if we're not actually practicing it, then that's for nothing. There's no substitute for actually turning from your sin, turning to God and going before him and saying, Father, forgive me a sinner. There's no substitute, there's no shortcut. What you say you believe with your mind and in your heart, that will bleed out in the way you live with your hands and your feet. And in another way, Carter's description, it also can be really encouraging for those of us who aren't terribly emotionally expressive. Um, because how often do some of us find ourselves saying, I don't feel like I've repented enough. Um, probably a lot of us feel that way. And there's a, there's a lot that's, that's perilous about viewing repentance through that way because repentance isn't something you necessarily feel. Paul gets at this when he says, you know, there are two types of sorrow. There's worldly sorrow and there's godly sorrow. And notice the godly sorrow is only godly. It's only good if it leads to repentance. And so our feelings can be really helpful here and feeling remorseful over our sin. But even if you know, you're not someone who you get the feels very often, that doesn't mean you can't repent or your repentance is less worthy or less repentant at all. Because repentance is a matter of what are you doing? Which way are you running? Are you turning from your sin and you turning back to God? And so as you look at your life, do you see that you are using the means of grace more and more to help you push back against your sin? Do you see that when you do sin, you're finding that your feet run a little bit faster to the throne of grace? If you are, then take heart, regardless of how you may feel, you are growing in your practice of repentance. So focus not just on what you feel, but focus first on what is real already in your union with Christ. 
And let, over time, the Spirit sanctify your hands, your heart, and your mind. Now let's look back at the text and see verse 10. As we see God's response to the Ninevites' repentance as he relents from the impending disaster. And so the amazing thing is, you know, they ask, who knows, what will God do? And as soon as God sees what they did, how they turned from their evil way, he relents of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And especially in, in a, the Reformed tradition, you may be wondering, well, wait a minute, this, this doesn't seem right. I thought God doesn't change his mind, so why does he decide to do the very thing he just said a moment ago that he would do? How does this work? Well, on the one hand, this is just good parenting. You know, if you tell your kids, like, hey, we're going to have, uh, you know, really nice dessert tonight, um, you make this, this great meal as well, and you've got some, like, just fresh vegetables, and then they don't eat the vegetables, you're not going to let them eat the dessert. It's not that you went back on your word or you were untrue to your character, but, you know, you have to eat your vegetables if you're going to eat some chocolate. And in the same case here, um, it's, it's the opposite, but God, you know, he issues this warning to them, and for him to relent from the disaster, it's not that he's changing who he is, but it's that hearing who God is, they change who they are before God. They heed the warning. They don't want to know God as judge, and instead, they heed the invitation to know him as a benevolent king who relents of this disaster. So it wasn't that God changed his word or that he changed who he was in his character, but it's that his word and his character were changing the Ninevites before him. And in fact, um, if you were to look in Jeremiah 18, this, there's a key passage in Jeremiah 18 that is really helpful for understanding how Old Testament prophecy works. Because so often we, th we think of prophecy as like a fortune cookie, um, and, and even more specifically, you know, reading tomorrow's newspaper today, like it's gonna tell us what's gonna happen. But so much of the prophet's work was bound up by taking the word of the Lord and declaring it, and then there was a contingency. If you heed it and obey, this will happen. And if you ignore it and you're stubborn, then this will happen. And so in that passage in Jeremiah 18, God says, look, if I declare to a nation through one of my prophets that I will, you know, upend you and destroy you, but then they turn and do good, then I will relent of the disaster I said I would do over them. And the interesting thing is that at the end of God talking about how he works through his prophets, the Israelites go, meh, we're gonna be stubborn, we're gonna do our own thing. And so think about how here the Ninevites are a brilliant object lesson of that truth. They are the ones who they receive the warning, they listen, and God relents. There are very few cases of citywide or nationwide repentance in Israel's own history. This one puts them to shame pretty much all except maybe Hezekiah and Josiah at a couple of points. But for the vast majority of Israel's history, they fall far short of listening to God's prophets like this. Now, one point of disagreement though, as people wrestle with this part of the story, they're like, yeah, you know, this is, this is a big deal. But is it truly spiritual reform or revival that they go through or just societal reform? People argue about, will we see some of these Ninevites in the new heavens and the new earth? Um, and the reason that some commentators suggest they, they don't become worshipers of God is they don't use the covenant name Yahweh. They don't use the Lord here. And that's actually very different from what the sailors did back in chapter one. They fear the Lord exceedingly. They make vows, they sacrifice here, the Ninevites, they repent and it's genuine. God wouldn't have been fooled, but it talks primarily about them turning from their violence and listening to his word. And so some people say, well, maybe, maybe they weren't converted the way we would usually use that word. But the interesting thing 
is that if you go to the New Testament, you look in Matthew 12 and Luke 11, Jesus talks about the sign of Jonah. And the sign of Jonah would have been that uh, Jonah was three days, three nights in the belly of the fish. And also, it was multifaceted. It was that the Ninevites hear Jonah's preaching and they repent. And Jesus says to the scribes and the Pharisees, he says that on the day of judgment, the Ninevites who repented at Jonah's preaching, they will be raised and they will condemn you, scribes and Pharisees. Why? Because one greater than Jonah is here and you are not listening to what he is saying. And so it's not a slam dunk interpretation, but I do think Jesus's point may indicate that we will see some of the Ninevites in the new heavens and the new earth, just like Nebuchadnezzar. And that they weren't just saved from physical destruction, but that some of them perhaps were also saved from spiritual condemnation. But here's the thing that really matters. is that just a few generations later, God's gonna send another prophet who's also gonna talk about Nineveh. And that prophet's name is Nahum. And he is gonna proclaim a message concerning Nineveh's certain destruction, which means this moment of repentance didn't last. That one generation's repentance didn't get passed on to the next generation, that they turned back from their turning away from their violence. They turned back to their violence. And so in the span of Nineveh's story, this moment of repentance in Jonah 3, it is a short blip. It is a bright beacon to be sure for a moment, but its flame dies out in a flash. Nineveh will be upended in the end. And that ought to be sobering to us. Martin Luther was very famous for saying that the Christian life is one that's, that's all of repentance, and he was right about that. We never outgrow our need to repent. We, we can grow as Christians, but as Calvin explains in his little book on the Christian life, like we grow and we press on with a limp and a stagger. We may outgrow certain specific sins the longer we live, the longer we follow Christ, but we will never outgrow the need to repent from our sins. Repentance is sort of like a compass. If you've ever been orienteering, you know when you shoot that bearing, you try to go in that direction, it's very easy to get off track. The terrain changes, and so if you don't keep using that compass to keep you on course, you can go very far astray. And so we're always in need of repentance to turn us back from the sin that calls us away, that distracts us and pulls us from God, and, and to reorient ourselves with repentance. We don't outgrow that need. And it's so easy, though, when we think of repentance to just stop there, right? Be like, all right, cool, so now we know how to repent. But we don't stop when we think about what impact is our repentance having on the people around us? Because it is. Repentance isn't just about us as individuals. It's about us as a church and not just the church today, but the church today that is raising up, discipling, and cultivating the church of tomorrow. And so a great question as we think about the joys of repentance, the way we've experienced God's compassion is start out and yes, ask, how have you experienced God's compassion through repentance? But don't stop there. Ask too, how can your experience of God's compassion build up our church in the coming generations? Like think about in church history, in world history, or even just easier in your own family history, how things that are not repented of well in one generation impact the generations that follow. You know, a temper that, that, that is not dealt with by a father will often you know, have great impact um, on his children. And just one example. You can look at church history, problems and squabbles that exploded in one generation that weren't brought to resolution. You know, they blow up and continue to fester for generations to come. We know this. And so if we can grow as a church in our practice of repentance, if we can become a people that do that well, then we have something worth inviting the coming generations into. But what that means is we get past 
the fear of our sin being found out. And we get to the place where we can tell stories of God's compassion taking root in our lives through repentance. Because we recognize that the stories that are worth telling aren't just, oh man, this is all the ways I've messed up. But no, these are all the ways that God has been so good to me in those places where I never thought I could see his grace coming. And I was terrified to open up, but he met me here. And it was good. And because of that, you know, you are equipped, maybe because of your story, to encourage somebody else who needs it. Think about how so often when you have, you've been brought through that valley by the Lord, and you've been brought through your sin into his throne, and you're still alive, you live to tell about it, and that fear starts to fade, you realize God's used that to equip me so that I could come alongside somebody else in his family and could encourage them with my story of his grace to me. And I think that's what's beautiful um, this morning as we come to the Lord's table, as we recognize in a moment, as we gather for a meal as a family, think about the stories you tell at dinner time, you know, or the stories sometimes you don't tell. If your family dynamic is one of fear or passivity, you, know, you, don't, you don't really talk too much. Everything stays below the surface, and that has impact. But if you have stories that are good and worth sharing, then as you gather for a meal, that's the best time to do that. And so we get to remember this morning that this is a place where God has brought us together. He's brought us out of our sin. He's brought us to himself, and that changes us. And as he has changed us, he's equipping us to be used by him as he changes each other. This is why Sinclair Ferguson says that the jewels of spiritual service, they are always quarried in the depths of spiritual experience. Never is this more true than in revival. That is the significance of the motto of one of the Welsh revivals, bend the church and save the people. Will we be bent and broken for God's service? Will the sin of Jonah in our hearts become the sign of Jonah? Only when the sign of Jonah is seen in the church will the power of God be seen in the world. So that's the question before us. Will we be bent, church? Will we be those who, despite our fear, will come boldly before God's throne of grace, repent, turn from our sin, and not just turn from the doing of our sin, but turn from the fear of our sin, recognizing that it doesn't get to have the final say. It is not who you are in Christ. You are a redeemed and beloved child, and you can turn and you can run to God's throne of grace, and you can partake of the means of grace this morning with great joy, knowing that deep down, it's not those things you're scared of that define you, but that deep down, you are defined by grace. And so this morning, as we wrap up, Jonah 3, 6 through 10, it teaches us, first, that God does delight. He delights in showing compassion to those who repent from their sins. He would much rather show compassion than he would, um, than he would come in judgment. And two, that God does not spare us from every consequence of our sins, so don't wait to repent but at the same time, he gives us a new identity in Christ. Don't, don't miss out on being known by God as a beloved child of his. And then lastly, God uses our repentance to build up the church and to build up the coming generations. So again, as I said, our stories can be used by God to grow and to encourage one another. And so with all of that in mind, um, let us turn to God and pray that he would use the Ninevites' example their practice of repentance, to stir us up in our own practice of repentance, to bring us out of fear and into deeper faith, knowing our God's compassion. Because it's only if we know God in, our depths, in the depths of our spiritual experience, as Ferguson puts it, that we could ever be equipped for spiritual service, for mission for the life of the world. That won't happen, and it can't happen unless we first partake 
of God's grace through repentance. And so let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are good. We thank you that you are a God who can do amazing things. Lord, you can send one prophet to a whole city of people who knew nothing about you and who certainly by their own nature would have been much more inclined to have, who have sent Jonah running. Um, but Lord, you used Jonah's message. Um, and he was a, he was a uh, you know, broken man, Lord. And we'll see next week, God, how, how you, know, you were still having a lot of work to do on his own life. But you used him to wake this city up. And they turned from their violence and they turned to you, Lord, and you heard. Oh, Lord, we all come this morning with many things we're scared of, with things we feel guilty and ashamed of, Lord, things we would be terrified for people to know. But Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts, that you would draw us out of our fears and draw us into your presence, Lord. Grow our faith, O Holy Spirit, and help the, the tears of our faith to, to be born through repentance and that we would turn truly from our sin, that we would not try to do it half-heartedly, that we take the time to do it well, this Lord's Day Sabbath, and Lord, not so that we'd sit there and just feel sorry for ourselves, but so that we could taste and see how good you are. And Lord, with that experience that we have, would you use us to build up one another as your church, your family, your people? And Lord, would you give us the hearts and the minds to do that well, not just for today, but Lord, for tomorrow as we seek to raise up our children and equip them to raise their own children, Lord, would you do a mighty work in our church generationally? just starting, Lord, with the ordinary things that you call us to in discipleship of faith and repentance. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen.